Hey everybody, this is Chris McClung coming to you from Austin, Texas to intro this special edition episode that I'm sharing with you on this Sunday. I am starting a new podcast with Kara Goucher and her agent Shanna Burnett on the topic of clean sport. Back in 2016, Shanna and Kara started an organization called the Clean Sport Collective And that organization is an awareness and advocacy organization that focuses on clean sport and trying to promote clean athletes as well as encourage people to take the clean sport pledge. When I was in Boulder recording an episode with Kara back in, I believe that was January, February timeframe, February, I had a conversation with Shanna and Kara about this concept and that they wanted to start a podcast built around the Clean Sport Collective to raise awareness for anti-doping efforts as well as clean clean sport advocacy across all sports, not just running. And so they said they wanted to start a podcast and asked me if I would help. And this is a topic, as you know, if you're a longtime listener, that I'm very, very passionate about and knowledgeable about. So it's really an honor to be asked by them to help in this this new initiative. And I've got to I got to spend time with them in earlier, uh, well, in May, kicking off our recordings and our interviews to launch the podcast. We've recorded, I believe it's eight eight interviews so far. We've just launched today our first three episodes. The first one is the one I'm sharing with you today. So I'm, we're actually cross-posting this on the Running Rogue feed, but this podcast will have its own dedicated feed, which will be up on iTunes soon, but that uh, you can access via via a direct link, which I'll include in the show notes. It's just simply cleansport.libsyn.com. Libsyn spelled L-I-B as in boy S-Y-N. So cleansport.libsyn.com. And so you can go there and see the first three episodes that we're releasing today. This one is the one that we did first. And we recorded an interview with Travis Tigert, the CEO of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, USADA, in what was a really fascinating discussion with him on the state of anti-doping efforts in the U.S., We've also, we're also releasing our second episode, which is actually an in-depth conversation with Shanna and Kara themselves on what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast. And then our third interview that we've released is with Kevin Rutherford, the CEO of Noon Hydration, talking about what sponsors can do to promote clean sport and what Kevin himself has done as a board member of the Clean Sport Collective. And so I'm excited to share this content with you, I'm, exci- I'm excited to be a part of it. I'll be hosting the episodes with either Shanna or Kara as we go through these conversations. We've already also recorded interviews with Jenny Simpson. That's an episode that we'll post next with Miranda Carfrey, the world champion triathlete, with John Coyles, who is the head of anti-doping efforts for Major League Baseball. And we really want this not just to be about running, but to be about advocating for clean sport across all sports. So it's exciting to be a part of it for me. We're going to be releasing after this initial batch of episodes, we'll be releasing episodes 
every other week on its own dedicated clean sport feed, which I'll share with you guys via the show notes today. And then once it's live on iTunes, I'll make sure you know where to find it. And so this will be a new podcast I'm a part of. Of course, nothing's happening to this podcast. I'll continue to do what I do with this podcast as always. And, and, but this is just a little side project that in my opinion is really important for promoting fair play across all sports. And I, if I can play a small part personally in, in raising the conversation or elevating the conversation around this topic and continuing to, to push the ball forward on discussions around clean sport, especially those that help protect athletes that are doing things the right way, then I'm excited to be a part of it. So, so this is episode one. I've teed it up. We're going to start with just a little intro with Kara and Shanna to talk about what we're trying to accomplish with this, and then we'll jump into the interview with Travis. So here we go. Quickly, though, as we tee this up, just to give people some context on what we're doing, and we'll talk a little bit more about what episodes we have coming up a little bit later, but I want to turn it to you, Shanna. First of all, what is the Clean Sport Collective? Clean Sport Collective is a nonprofit. It's a 501c3. And we started it because we had good relationships with Karen, Adam Goucher, and everything that they went through. And a lot of people are coming to us and saying, like, how can we help? So we started this nonprofit in a way to hold everybody accountable. And it's not only about professional athletes like Karen Adam Goucher. It's about the collective of people because it's a collective of people that you surround yourself with, whether you make good choices or bad choices. So we started it as a pledge that you are pledging to clean sport. The professional athletes, when they sign the pledge, there is a $25,000 fine if they are ever tested positive, but there is a place for people to pledge, whether you're a professional athlete, whether you're an amateur athlete, a fan, a sponsor, which we think is a big part of the situation, a doctor, um, and a coach. So we want to hold everybody accountable, um, good or bad. We want to praise the clean athletes who are doing it the right way and not only have a platform where it's only about dopers, but then we also want to make sure that we are holding each other accountable and that we are praising the people that are doing it the right way. But why did you raise your hand to start this? I mean, this is a big initiative. It's taken a lot of work. You have a day job. Why did you raise your hand and say, I'm going to be a part of a solution? I, we started because I am very passion-based. I like doing business for good. We got paid $0.0. In fact, we, you know, me and my husband like lost money getting this started. But it's more about doing the right thing. And there always has to be hope. And I think that praising the athletes and the people that are doing it the right way and having hope for the future is the only way that we can make the sport better. And we were blown away by the amount of support that we got when we started. It was incredible. We had Brooks and Ultra and Noon Hydration and Wazelle and these big companies sign the pledge right away. And then we had professional athletes like Molly Huddle, like that was amazing. Her New York Marathon debut, she was wearing the clean sport tattoo in her race. And we've had Alicia Montano and Emma Coburn and Jenny Simpson and Amy Hastings and Gwen Jorgensen, uh, Jesse Thomas, Rob Carr, 
and Jesse Diggs, who won the gold medal in cross-country skiing. All these athletes were like, yes, we want to do something. And there wasn't a way to come together to be able to do it and show support of these athletes and have hope in the future. There's also a role for fans too, right? So how do you see that in the collective? I think fans play a big part, a bigger part than they give themselves credit for because without fans, we don't have the viewership and without the viewership, we don't have the sport. And I think cycling is the best sport that has given us a loss of hope and a loss of fans. And you've seen uh, a peak of a sport that has gone downhill and still trying to find its way. So we didn't want that for the other sports. Um, We want that viewership. I want our kids and Kara's son and your kids to be like, yeah, I want to do that sport. And I have amazing role models that can lead the way. And I, as a fan, have something to believe in. And I'm going to push for that person or that brand or that coach that I know is doing it the right way. Some fans are jaded, though. For sure. So what would you tell the jaded fan about getting involved with the Clean Sport Collective and or just listening to what we're going to share with this podcast? I would say that the biggest thing that you can do is educate yourself. Uh, Educate yourself in people doing it the right way and companies doing it the right way. So many times I think that we go to work, we come home, we buy things, we buy sports equipment for our child but your hard working dollars are buying that stuff and so when you're looking at brands doing it the right way make it make a decision around that and your dollars mean so much if everybody did a little bit and everybody thought about where their purchasing dollars were going it would matter a lot and then i think it would have great groundswell into doing something bigger So we're hoping to educate the fans. I think an educated fan is also someone who could discern who might be doing it the right way and who might not be. And so we'll be talking about that a little bit as well. Bringing you in, Kara, you really need no introduction. Two-time Olympian, podium finisher in major marathons. You're part of the reason why this Clean Sport Collective exists. You've also been outspoken coming out about your experiences with perhaps the dark side of the sport at the Nike Oregon Project. Why is this important for you? You know, I love my sport so much. Sport has given me so much. It's given me self-confidence, a reason to get up in the morning, and I want to protect it. And I feel like most people who love sports, whether they're fans or they're actually involved, they they connect to it in a way that's so personal and it brings them so it just brings so much joy and power into their life. And so I want to protect that for the next generation, and I don't want my son to think he has to cheat to be a great athlete, or he has to do something that's unethical. Um, There's also so many fans that are constantly asking, what can we do? How can we show your support? And that's a great question, and I think Shanna touched on that. One of the things that the Clean Sport Collective we're hoping to do is to bring awareness of brands that have tough, tough restrictions on things like doping, athletes that have been caught doping, then they feel power and when, when they make a purchase, purchasing choice, they have a lot of power in that and they feel good about that. But for me, it's really just about, you know, running has given me so much and what a shame it would be if it ended here. It needs to go on to the next generation and it's, I do feel like it's my responsibility to protect the next generation to fight for them. 
it's inspiring to me that you still are a fan of a sport in which you've seen some of the dark sides. How do you maintain that perspective to still be hopeful? I love I love seeing miracles just like the regular fan who tunes in every four years to watch the Olympic Games. I believe in greatness and I believe in the stars aligning for athletes and I believe in great performances. I obviously am, I don't like to use the word jaded, but more educated and have seen things that have really robbed me of some of that joy. But I just think back to who I was when I first really truly watched the Olympic Games and the people that I rooted for and how much I coveted that U.S. Olympic singlet and all of the hope and like happiness it, it would bring me for two weeks watching these athletes. I, that's, that's still there for me. I still love watching track meets. I still love watching the Olympics. There are certain events and things that I don't really want to watch or I don't pay as close attention to, but I still find so much joy in it. And that's why I just feel like I have to fight for it because it has done so much in my life. And what a shame it would be if 30 years from now, people just watched it and didn't believe what thing they were seeing. Part of what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast is to elevate the voice of the athlete in the equation, which oftentimes seems too quiet, not necessarily for their, their fault, not necessarily the fault of the athletes, but the fault of those that are in power. What do you hope as, a, who's, as someone who's been an athlete at the highest levels, what do you hope for athletes to be able to say or communicate to those that might listen through this podcast? I hope that this podcast can be like a safe place for athletes to come express their frustrations, but also motivate and inspire all of us to do better. Um, It's a scary topic to talk about. There's a lot of negativity that comes when you talk about wanting the sport, your sport to be cleaned up. And so any athlete that comes on our podcast is taking a risk, no matter how benign or vanilla their interview might end up being. So I think the athletes that we have on, it takes a lot of courage to talk about this. It's very, it's a taboo topic, especially when you're still competing. And so I want them to feel like it's a safe place where they can come and share their experiences and educate us so that we know what we can do moving forward. Like we have a better idea, which with each athlete we talk to, we learn more and more. So if, and if I were to summarize our objectives with this podcast, as we, as the three of us have talked about it, there'd be three in my mind. And I'll ask you, Shanna, if you would add to this list, but one, it's to celebrate clean athletes, celebrate those are doing it, who are doing it the right way and hopefully give them a voice. The second thing would be to educate people, not just fans, but also athletes and sponsors about what's happening in the world of clean sport. And the third part which may be aspirational, is to bring hope to people that you can believe in sport. Even though there are those that cheat, you can believe in sport that there is a place where fair play thrives. And hopefully we can be a part of that conversation. Would you add anything to that list, Shanna? I think you nailed it, Chris. I totally agree. So with that, let's intro our first guest, Travis Tigert. So taking this to you, Kara, Travis is someone that you met when you came forward to talk about the doping allegations at the Oregon Project with Nike. So let's, as we intro this, talk about, one, how you became aware that somebody like Travis existed and that you could go talk to him. Yeah, I I mean, I 
first learned of Travis when I saw him being interviewed on TV. Um, Lance Armstrong had just been on the Oprah show. It was back in early, early 2013. And he did an interview after that I saw. And I just, you know, it's, it's hard as an athlete to know who to trust. And I, it just in the words he was saying and the passion he was showing, I felt like this guy gets it. This guy cares about us. And so, you know, I told my husband that night, if you get him, I'll go to USADA. And he somehow did like Travis was overseas and everything, (laughs) but he got it done. So that's how I learned of him. And then of course I went in and met him and then I've been in communication with him for six years. How did Adam get him? We have a friend that used to be uh, uh, the head of sports medicine at the U.S. Olympic Committee, who's still very involved in USA basketball. And Adam said, do you have any connection to him? And he said, yeah, I know him. So he actually made the introduction. And then you go to Colorado Springs to sit down with him. What was that meeting like? I mean, to be honest, it was very intimidating and he wasn't the only person in the room. There was other lawyers in the room. And I mean, I, at the time, I felt like I was betraying people that I cared about. So it was a lot longer than I thought. I thought I was going to go in for like 30 minutes and then go home. Um, we were there for hours. I cried a lot. Um, but it was clear to me that an investigation was already ongoing um, and that this wasn't the first time that they had heard some of these stories. And so it was just a very exhausting experience. It was exhausting, which makes sense. Was it, did it also give you some hope that that action could be taken? At the time, I remember saying, I don't want anything to happen to them. Just tell them that you know, and then they'll stop. <laughs> um, I was still a Nike-sponsored athlete, so I was very scared that I would, if they found out I went in, that I would lose my contract. Um, and I was the sole provider for our family at the time. So I, I was scared. I didn't talk about it with anyone. Um, and I, I didn't have it. I didn't. I just didn't know. Right. I just didn't know how these things worked. I thought that it would be if something was going to happen, it would happen very quickly. And, as, you know, it's six years later. So I, I just was not very educated on the process. Did you find in him the things you thought you would? I did. I, I have to say, I, I know he there are people who believe in him and people who don't. I believe in him and I believe in their team. And no matter what the outcome is at the end of all of this, I know that they have done everything they can to fight for us. Did you know that walking out of there that day or that's just something you've learned over time? I did not know that at all walking out of there that day. I mean, I, I was like incoherent. You know, I was so exhausted. I had cried so much. I definitely felt a little defensive because uh, they had asked me some pretty hard questions. So I, I didn't know really what would happen after that first day. I didn't know if they really believed me. I didn't know if they thought it, if it was important enough. Um, but it was something that built over time. And I would say, especially in the last two years, um, they've, I really, he's been there for us. And so has his team. And there's no doubt in my mind that they've done everything in their power. And we can't talk about the details of, the, of that case because it's still pending. But you've developed a relationship with Travis outside of that because of that initial introduction. What have you seen in what he's doing for the sport beyond just your specific case? We've, we've served on a lot of panels together. Um, 
the last few years, actually. And he's very passionate about protecting clean athletes. And that gives me hope. <laughs> There's someone in a position of power and it's not, um, it's not just like a tagline. Like he is very passionate. I've seen him get feisty about it. And so I just think he's, I, I, I mean, I asked him just last month, like, where do you go after this? Like, what are you hoping this leads to? And he said, I'm hoping this is my career forever. I'm hoping this is a lifetime position. He is passionate about what he's doing and he, he believes in what he's doing and he believes in fighting for clean athletes and protecting them. And so in this interview, we'll talk to Travis about a wide range of things from the state of anti-doping efforts in the U.S. to the state of testing to also what's happening with the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, because they have a new president or at least a president to be announced as we record this. We'll cover all of those things and then also briefly talk with him about how USADA tries to advocate for athletes like you. So let's welcome Travis to the show. Welcome, Travis Tiger, to the show. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Chris, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you guys doing this. And Kara, thank you as well. Yeah. We're excited to have you on. We wanted to start with just a little bit on your background. Tell us how you came to be the CEO of USADA. What's the journey? Well, I, um, I went to... I went to uh, law school after teaching and coaching for a few years. So I, and I played sports growing up, um, taught high school economics and government, went to law school. Um, and then, you know, was just really interested in doing something that I was passionate about and worked for a big law firm down in Dallas for a little while, kind of, you know, huge international sort of corporate litigation, commercial litigation, fighting over dollars and cents. And, and I just didn't enjoy it as much. You know, it wasn't something I really looked forward to waking up in the morning and going to do. It was probably the best training and experience I've had professionally, of course, you know, because the standard that they set to be the best lawyer when you're getting, you know, charged, somebody's paying you, you know, several hundred dollars an hour to do legal work for them right out of law school. Like it better be A plus 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 type work. So it was a great experience from from that standpoint. But kept kept my eyes out and ear to the ground and was really interested in kind of sports law, you know, thought about going the agency route, representing athletes, you know, had some, some friend, very good close friends from high school that ended up, um, you know, doing extremely well. One actually just got inducted to the hall of fame for baseball this past year. And, you know, we had had some conversations and he, he basically said, look, Travis, I think, you know, uh, being an agent in this day and time for, you know, major professional sports is, is about, you know, the uh, polar opposite of where you are, you know, ethically and from an integrity standpoint, you know, you're not going to, one, you probably won't be successful because the things you have to do in that business to be successful are not things that you would be otherwise willing to do. So I I just kind of, you know, kept looking out for law positions that represented organizations in sports. Um, actually literally was at this commercial law firm down in Dallas and hopped on. It was before monster.com advertised, um, in the Super Bowl, but they were a client of ours and I just, and no one at that point had ever heard of monster.com before. And I just hopped on there and typed in sports law and, and literally a firm here in Colorado Springs that had one of the best national sports law practices, a Denver based law firm, a recruiter had heard. They had an associate position that was available. This was in basically April of 2000, and it was right after USADA was formed here in Colorado Springs. 
the law firm became the outside counsel to USADA. Um, I saw the job. I applied for the job. I interviewed for the job. I got the job. And half of my job at the time was going to be doing USADA work as literally this startup that was a CEO. We drafted the Articles of Incorporation, the bylaws, all the original protocols. And, and one thing led to the next, and, and I just absolutely fell in love with the idea of protecting athletes, representing athletes who are clean, who want the rules enforced. Um, a couple years into it, I was asked to come in as the sole lawyer. I was outside counsel prior to that time period. Came in in 02 um, and then fought you know, really hard just to do what I think anybody in this position ought to do, which is to day in and day out commit to being the best you possibly can be for clean athletes. And then in 07, the CEO at the time, um, the only other CEO resigned and, and the board, you know, I think took a, a big chance on just a, a, you know, relatively inexperienced, but committed, passionate person for the rights of clean athletes and asked me to take over and I've been doing it ever since, attempting to prove the board made the right decision when they hired me every single day since that time period. What does it take from a mentality standpoint to keep proving that? I mean, obviously you're passionate about protecting clean, clean athletes, but you're also in the line of fire a lot as somebody who has received death threats for the work that you do. People don't generally like watchdogs. So what is it about your mentality? What makes you tick that keeps you going in the face of those things? You know, I think it, I, I think, I think those things actually, uh, double down the resolve, right? Mm -hmm. Like if, I mean, it was sort of the first chord that was struck with us and how aggressive and nasty some responses certain people have had when we've asked them to come sit down and interview with us or talk to us about potential doping in the sport. And, and when you see those efforts to avoid the truth, you know, I've, again, I think anyone in a position like ours has to, you know, just commit to, to the principle of the truth and not let you know, whether it's death threats or hate mail or, you know, pressure from politicians or whatever it may be, pressure from the media, you know, prevent you from just simply pursuing the truth with the same sort of tenacity, the same sort of unwillingness to give up that our athletes, you know, sitting here looking at Kara, that our athletes every single day put into their training to be the best that they possibly can be. You know, it's, it's not about USADA or any one individual at USADA you know, doing a good job. It's, it's about the principle of fair play actually meaning something and standing for something and having, you know, a board of directors like we do led by our chair, Edwin Moses, great Olympian, you know, never lost a race for nine <laughs> plus years. It, it's that kind of commitment and that kind of determination that I think anybody in this position, whether you're on our board or on our staff, you just simply have to have because you know, while you don't like it, that's what sport has become today. I mean, I, I told somebody the story one time. My, my uncle was a judge in Jacksonville, Florida, and, you know, he would put, you know, gang members in jail and would get threats at his house and would have security around the clock. He would have to come in and out of the courthouse sometimes with security. Like, you expect that to some extent. I mean, still, the judge is, you, you know, not, it should be immune from those kind of things as well. Our role is to protect sport. It's hard to believe when we first saw it that someone in sport was going to have to endure and an organization was going to have to endure those same types of threats to avoid consequence or just simple 
you know, revenge that people like to take out when things don't go the way that they otherwise want it to. So, so look, I, I think it, you have to, you have to have that view. I, I, I firmly believe if you want to be successful and if you want to gain the trust of the athlete community and your stakeholders that you're not going to bend or bow to commercial pressures, to external pressures, whatever they may be political from, you know, Capitol Hill or elsewhere or from the media, you have to really just block out that noise and know you're here to do the right thing. There's no personal investment in the outcome other than the principle of fair and true sport prevailing. I want to bring Kara in because you have said that that resolve you saw in him at some point inspired you to come forward. We're not going to talk about the details of the case that you reported on, but as somebody who's been in that chair as an athlete telling your story, why, why did you approach him? I think as an athlete, it's, you feel confused of who to trust. Who can you trust with information you have or concerns that you have? I think I saw Travis on TV after Lance Armstrong was on the Oprah show, and he just wasn't backing down. He was just saying, this is what happened. We can prove this and there has to be consequences. And he spoke about threats that came his way and people that tried to stop him. And he just was not going to stop. And for me, that said so much because I think as the athlete, you're scared. You, you, you just don't know who to trust. You don't know who's really going to have your back. And so for me, that's what made me think, all right, this guy gets it. And if I can talk to him, then maybe I can trust USADA. Obviously, you know a little bit about the process because you've experienced it, but we were talking earlier about the need to elevate athlete voices in many ways. So what questions would you have for Travis about that part of the process, about how athletes can get involved if they see something that doesn't look right? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of athletes that want to get involved or share their opinions and um, they would want to know from your point of view, what, what actually helps USADA do their job? Yeah. First, let me just say what, what Kara just said about her putting her trust in, you know, this organization and, and, and me, um, you know, that, that is so humbling and so satisfying um, and appreciate that that also comes with a huge burden. And, and it's that burden that I think our board, our staff, certainly myself, have committed to upholding in every situation. If, if an athlete, I know how difficult it is for athletes to stand up. I mean, I've heard, you know, from athletes like Kara and many, many, many others. And, and we fully appreciate that if, if they're willing to take that little bit of a step and, it, and how tough it is, the retaliation from the community, the being sued by folks who don't like the truth might ultimately come out. And we saw a lot of that in the Postal Services case. You know, the community that, that might, you know, back, have backlash towards those individuals. I mean, those are all serious risks that, that we fully appreciate. And, and so when someone does, have the courage to stand up and say, you know what, sport's too important to let it get, you know, become sullied and, and ruined through fraud and through doping and health and safety of athletes is too important to let happen. We, we are thrilled that some athletes have seen us as playing an independent role. And I think that's the cornerstone of, of why we can do what we're doing. We're not a sports organization. We're not a political organization. We're, we're here to do 
exactly what's in the best interest of athletes and including those who are willing to take the time and the and have the courage to to move forward and 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 come to us um and, and we're going to fight every single day to make sure that there's not one person out there as best we possibly can and understand we don't control everything within the global system we you know sometimes we wish others had the same view of independence and a commitment and the will and the determination to ensure athletes' rights are upheld no matter what. But we're gonna, we, we can't afford to have any athlete say, I came forward and you let me down. Like, look, it doesn't necessarily mean a case moves forward, but if an athlete is in that position, that's, that's bad for us. And that's gonna you know, erode the confidence and the trust that people have in the system. So each and every athlete that comes forward is that many more opportunities for us to demonstrate that we are here to do the right thing on behalf of athletes. And we're going to fight really hard in order to do that. I, I think to your question, I apologize for going down <laughs> that track. I, I think the, I, I think the information is really key. I mean, last year we had 713 tips that came in um, through our either play clean line or directly to us. Cause we have relationships with a lot of athletes and coaches and others who want us to be successful in cleaning up sport here in the United States. You know, that was up from about 660 tips in 2017. I, I think you're seeing that continue to, to move in the right direction. That allowed us off of those six, 713 tips that allowed us to do 136 targeted tests. So it was the information, you know, was specific enough and we believe credible enough to execute tests off of it. And that led to about a 10% positivity rate, which is much higher than, you know, our normal program is about, you know, one to a half of 1% from a positive positivity standpoint. And what that does is then, you know, feeds this deterrent model. Like we would love not to have to um, you know, have any positive tests or any cases to move forward because athletes say, hey, we're not going to do these drugs anymore. We're, we're going to compete honestly and, and, and by the rules of the game. We know as long as the spoils of victory, you know, are as they are and the pressures, particularly in certain countries, are as they are, you know, that's, that's likely not to happen sometime soon. But we would love for that to happen. And so the fact that we can continue to bring cases on those who are intentionally cheating the rules just further allows the deterrent hopefully to play out um, well for athletes who aren't, who may be tempted, but make the decision, I'm not going to go down that path. While it's tough, I'm not going to throw in the towel. I'm going to do it the right way. I know that's the only way to be a, a true hero. Um, but if they see everyone else getting away with it, you know, they're likely to simply give into the temptation and, and try to cheat and get away with it as long as they can. And we hope that part of that testing and our re being responsible to tips and other information that we get only further feeds a culture where the, the risk of getting caught are simply too high. The rewards are not near enough. You ought to just do it the right way and, and be able to live an honest life and not have to look over your shoulder for the rest of your life. Talk about the balance between testing and investigative work to find those, those, those bad apples in the mix because obviously that was a big part of the postal service case was was not testing results and analytical positives so what's usada doing to be on the front line there yeah i think the our strategy and view is we have to change the culture of sport and and we saw it a little bit in balco 
but we saw it firsthand in the postal services, our cycling investigation. And, and we honestly sat around this office and as this evidence came into us and we were corroborating the initial allegations that, you know, Floyd Landis, a cyclist who participated in, in, in the doping, brought to us in, you know, April, May of 2010, we, we said, look, we, we can give all the athletes, you know, two-year, maybe four-year or more sanctions. But we're going to be right back in the same predicament five, ten years from now. We have to do something to change the culture of the sport. And so our strategy was to allow the athletes to come in, provide information. We would give them as low. And in fact, we were pushing for amnesty um, for the athletes mm-hmm. and wanted a broad sort of, you know, get to the bottom of how dirty this entire Peloton was across the globe. Again, we didn't control that, but we would have loved and we pushed the International Federation to do exactly that because we knew it wasn't just the athletes that were involved with this fraud. There were coaches, there were team doctors, there may have been team owners. And until we, what the term we used around this office, dismantled the system, the corrupt system that so easily allowed these athletes to cheat in the way that they did, we were just going to be caught right back in the middle of it five, 10 years you know, from that time period. And so our approach has always been to go after those in the system that oversee the sport. You can't do that with testing because they're not in the testing program. So you have to have information. You have to have evidence like you see traditionally in, in, you know, on NCIS or, you know, law and order or whatever it may be in, in a court of law. And so the testing program, you know, if athletes are, you know, conspiring with those in the system, if they test positive, like we saw in the Postal Services situation, then they can come in and we want to use that information. And then we want to use that evidence and, you know, not necessarily have positive tests against those in the system, because again, they're not in the system, the, the testing part of the program, but use that to allow us to, you know, as best change that culture of sport as we possibly can on the things that we control. I mean, the lack of contracts for athletes, the you know, hugely um, based performance bonuses on athletes, you know, those types of things aren't in our direct control, but there's a whole host of other pressure points, I think, that, that allow athletes to so easily convince themselves that it's okay to cheat with performance enhancing drugs, you know, as long as they sort of believe they're going to be able to get away with it for a period of time. Kara, you were talking earlier today about the stats on those that that we presume to be doping versus actual testing positives. So tee up your question there on that. Yeah, I'm curious, what do you think can be done to close that gap? Because we've seen in track and field, we've seen um, surveys where we see big percentages of people who have admitted to doping. But then we, like you said, you're only getting like 1%. And so how do we close that gap so that we're catching more people? Yeah, I think I, I think it's how you frame or view the stats, right? Um, you know, somebody, and I've, I'm not suggesting this, but it's it's logical to view one percent. Some someone may make the argument, well, that means ninety nine percent are deterred and aren't using drugs. Now, I don't. I'm not going to sit here and 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 try to argue that. Um, I think I think you have to value, and it's really tough to value the deterrent effect of a of a program. Um, we're undertaking a prevalence study here. Our board just signed off on it this past weekend to, for us athletes, we're trying to bring in some other nottos around the world to do a, 
a full-on study to to try to get uh, an answer to what the pre- the actual prevalence of doping is in the field. I don't I don't know that we fully know. It gives me great hope that we have athletes at, at the top of the game, Kara being one. You know, Michael Phelps, who testified in front of Congress, who under oath voluntarily said, "I never used drugs," and here's how I, and why I want the system better. We're seeing you know, those types of athletes standing up like never before. And I think that's a really good, you know, anecdotal measure that in the U.S. at least, athletes do feel like they can win and are winning doing it the right way. The, the positivity number and, and whether it's half of 1% or 1%, again, I think is really tough to say that's all that's happening or that's not all that's happening. You really need some well-designed, um, and there's some, you know, scientific research out there on how you can do these types of surveys now, because it essentially comes down to athletes and are they willing to be truthful about what they tell you about the doping, that their own doping, as well as other doping that they may see. You know, the, the statute you, you referenced, Kara, I think the IAAF did um, a survey, I think it was in 11, maybe been nine and then 11 at the world championships. And, you know, I think there's some flaws in them to a certain extent, and I'm, and I'm not trying to necessarily, you know, discount them entirely. I think it was up to 40%, but it could have been way lower than that. But I look at it and say, well, all the Russian athletes were doing those surveys. And not only was there no anti-doping in Russia, but they were running a state-sponsored doping system. So, so of course, the Russian athletes, if they were being truthful in the surveys, like it should have been 100%, <laughs> right? Sure. So, so I think you got to you know, really narrow down two countries that have good systems. As well as, you know, we want to know the number across the globe to figure out where can we all improve. And I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that things are perfect here in the United States and that athletes aren't trying to cheat in the United States. You know, I hope that athletes see an organization committed to fair play. And, look, if you cheat, no matter who you are, you're, you're, you're going to get caught and you're going to be exposed as a cheater and get a sanction. And hopefully that you know, tells people don't, don't take the risk. Who do you think is setting the standard across? Like, do you think it's the U S that has the toughest policy? You know, we, it's a, it's an awesome question. And it's the, it's the number one complaint we get from our athletes. And you and I, I think have talked about this before, but it's, Look, it's in, it's inconvenient. I've said it's you know maybe intrusive, and you and I disagree. I have, have debated about the. the <laughs> Kara where, wants it to be more intrusive. I want it now. to be more intrusive uh, yeah. about the yeah about the <laughs> inconvenient nature of the whereabouts and that whole system. Our athletes say, look, it's way less you know inconvenient than getting robbed at a world championship or on a national you know nationals or whatever it may be, Olympic games. So we're okay giving you our whereabouts, whatever, as long as. When we show up to those international competitions, athletes from those countries are also being held to the same standard. And, and there's, some, there's some serious questions around that. We took the top 10 medal winners since 2000, the countries, and understand there's going to be some disciplines within you know, the overall medal winners from the games, winter and summer, that might be more heavily influenced by doping or not. But we took the top 10 countries, overall medal winners, summer winter games since 2000. And you could look at the top 10 and see, you know, if you've got Canada, they're doing a heck of a job. England, Germany, France, um, Norway. You've got out of the 10, I think we identified two countries, Russia being the one total outlier, obviously. 
that you would love to see more or hear more or have a better level of confidence in the standards that they've got being put in place in their countries. As a fan, though, it seems like the story you hear is that it's easy to cheat the system, that the ones getting caught are the dumb ones. Lance himself said many times, I've never tested positive. That was his line. He didn't say, I've never doped. He just said, I've never tested positive. So how, as fans, can we believe in the testing protocol? Is it just better now, or is it, is it not? And we still have a long way to go to catch up to the cheaters. Yeah, I would say um, I, it's, it's miles ahead from a, a testing standpoint than where it was. I mean, certainly going back to 99, although I have to remind people, um, we now know Lance actually did test positive, right? And, right? and 99, the sport covered it up, essentially. He had the 99 um, positive test right. for the glucocorticosteroid that they backdated and you know, fraudulently provide a prescription for that the sport then let him off on. He then had the 01 series of EPO atypicals that otherwise should have been investigated. And then the retesting from the you know, 03 Tour de France. And then the 09 to 10 once we got the biological passport data, we're able to combine it with our biological passport data. But point being, it's, I think it's miles ahead of where it was certainly back in 1999. And, and that's, that's good for athletes. We have, as, as Kara was kind enough to participate over in London um, in the Partnership for Clean Competition. Is it perfect? No. Are we dedicated to making it as perfect as it possibly can be? Absolutely. And the Partnership for Clean Competition is an organization that is given roughly $3 million a year to scientific research. You know, we've, we formed it with the United States Olympic Committee, Major League Baseball, and the National Football League. And we've seen tremendous advances um, through it as well as other opportunities to, to get the science. You know, we want to we test that is literally, you know, uh, just, you know, take a, a small amount of saliva or blood or whatever it might be that can tell you if the person's ever doped intentionally. That, that's, the, that's the gold standard. I also hate framing it in the negative, right? Because you're going to catch someone, I'd rather prove that they're clean. And, you know, we, we launched a project in 08 prior to Beijing Olympic Games called Project Believe, where we had the leaders going into Beijing, you know, Michael Phelps, Allison Felix, you know, 10 to 12, I think it was 12 ultimately of the, of the literally the top, um, you know, athletes in their sports who said, I want to do, you know, whatever it would take to prove that I'm clean. That's what I'll do. And we sat around this office and said, well, if you are a clean athlete and yet everyone's judging you because you, you know, are going to win a bunch of medals or you break a record, they think automatically that you're dirty. How unfair of a culture is that? And how unfair for athletes? And so what would we do? And so we put together what our scientists and our team at the time said, this is the foolproof, you know, if we could do this, and, and it's way more invasive, um, you know, medical records, interviews with under oath, with law enforcement personnel, interviews with family members, all voluntarily doing that. And, and look, we were thrilled that 12 of our top going into Beijing volunteer, volunteered in order to do that. And, and that was as best we could get at the time to what would you do if you could, you know, prove you were clean, not sort of the, you know, the negative side of it. What do you do to catch somebody? But how valuable would it be if we could actually prove that people were clean? That's beautiful. And in a lot of ways, that's 
seems like what the world marathon majors are trying to do with their additional testing through the AIU, the Athletics Integrity Unit, unit to basically take a pool of athletes, I believe it's 150, subject them to more rigorous testing, subject them to more rigorous standards, and then say, hey, if you're going to compete for this big money in our sport of marathoning, you have to be in that pool and you have to be, you know, gold, gold standard according to it. Is, so is that the future? Is it more about finding the clean and elevating them versus versus finding uh, the dirty uh, or for, both? For sure. Listen, I mean, we, right now our, the sports culture, I mean, I've said it before, but lionizes the winner, right? And so what we cast aside is anyone that doesn't win. And so the pressures to win and the temptations to do whatever it takes, it, it's why the win at all costs you know, mentality has taken over, not just in sport, but in a lot of industries. So, so we have to shift that. Yes, we want to win and competition is good, but it's doing it the right way. And it's also building up and recognizing those who do it the right way, whether, you know, they're necessarily the ultimate person that finishes first or breaks the world record or, or not, but, but having a, a, a real value around what it means to compete, you know, as hard as you possibly can but still within the rules that apply to all competitors. Let's talk about the World Anti-Doping Agency. I believe it's May 13th. Tomorrow's May 14th, if I'm not mistaken. I think they choose their new president tomorrow, which has been hotly debated. You've gone on the record before of saying that the current president hasn't done his job, Craig Reedy. He's, he's outgoing. You've said part of the problem with him has been the fact that he comes from a sports promotion background. So he's He's a bit conflicted in terms of his desires, not just to elevate sport, but also to to promote it and make money from it. So what are you hoping happens tomorrow? So for sure, Craig, Sir Craig Reedy is conflicted. And and we have been outspoken about that for all the obvious reasons. And and what what um what was telling is it, it, we didn't need to even experience it to know. Because we saw it with cycling during our postal service investigation. Remember, the head of cycling at the time was a board member, uh, executive committee member of, of WADA. And he was, you know, reportedly trying to talk athletes out of cooperating with us and telling them they didn't need to sit down and tell us anything at the same time that he was sitting on the WADA executive committee. Um, I mean, it's pretty incredible. And the, the problem is when you have sports promoters who at the time are wearing their sports promotion hat, like Craig Reedy as the IOC executive board member, then put, attempts to put on a, a policing hat, you know, if you want to call it that, a regulatory hat, you just can't possibly do both simultaneously. So you should remove one or the other. But, but we saw this coming back in May of 2013 before Sir Craig was elected. And when we talked with our board about it to say, look, this is going to change the global regulator in a really big way, and it's going to be compromised to some extent. Now, we couldn't possibly imagine they were going to, you know, stumble into um, and, and be forced to have to deal with because the media, you know, uh, prominently displayed all the evidence that was going on state-sponsored Russian. But it was, a, it was a perfect storm for the issue of independence and how important that is to be seen, you know, totally around the world. So tomorrow there is a, a meeting by the public authorities tomorrow. My understanding is there'll be an election. And right now it's the uh, sports minister from Poland 
It's a, a deputy minister, I think, from the Dominican Republic. You know, what we, and we've met with both of them, and we were honored to be able to do that. And, of course, we know the one, uh, Marcos, from the Dominican Republic because he's been the representative of the Americas for the past several years to the WAD Executive Committee. So we have a, a good relationship there. But, look, what we've told both of um, the candidates is we're going to do everything possible to make you successful. And here are our concerns, and we hope that, you know, you when you get elected, that you'll commit to doing what's in the best interest of clean athletes and, and nothing more. You know, our concern's more around the principles of the governance. Like, it, there's something wrong when someone can be on the executive committee for two or three or more years making really important decisions, knowing that they're, they're then going to run for election to be the chair. Like, there ought to be some rule that doesn't allow that to happen. And I think if you look back on it, you, you maybe see some, you know, decisions that might have been different. And, and athletes at the time deserve to have the sole decision-making being based on what's best for clean athletes, not because someone may want to run for election at a, at a different, t- you know, in a couple of years. And, and similarly, I think there should be some cooling off period after, you know, you have served as the WADA president before you can go work directly for a sports organization that you oversaw while you were the global regulator. You know, we have similar, you know, rules like that. And Capitol Hill, you can't become a lobbyist on, you know, immediately there's a cooling off period for a year or two. Address um, those conflicts of interest. Yeah, yeah. So, Kara, if you were an athlete competing in an Olympic Games today, knowing that the World Anti-Doping Agency is the primary global watchdog, how would you feel about that? I think that they... They still need to earn the athletes' trust back. I think the situation with Russia and the moving of deadlines made a lot of athletes feel frustrated and feel like they can't trust them yet. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there for, before athletes will trust what's going on there. Do you have hope, though, personally? I mean, I'm, I'm just like a hopeful person in general, but I'm also realistic. <laughs> I think, <laughs> Yeah, I do like to hope. I, I do think that there's always going to be people trying to cheat and there's always going to be people that aren't doing it the right way. And there's, there's a lot of money in Olympic sports, especially around the Olympic year. So that, that there's always going to be that challenge there. One of the things I talk to fans about who get jaded on this topic as a fan myself is that there's the testing part of it, but there's also the leadership part of it. And until the leaders that are, directing things from the very top in these global sports organizations from WADA to the IOC to IAAF to FIFA until they're serious about this it's not really going to change at the level it needs to so what would you tell somebody about Akira to give them hope that there will be the right change at that level yeah, I think I think the and you've and you've seen it over the past, you know, let's say 20 years, the USOC was accused of being the biggest, you know, offender of fair play, you know, pre 2000. And it's in large part what led to our existence. And they said, look, we're going to set up an independent organization. We're going to get out of the business. We can't be faulted if our athletes are cheating and not getting caught. That's someone else's responsibility who's independent and has that sole focus to, to do it, not for sport promotion purposes, but for actual, you know, uh, rule law and, and fair play purposes. You see this, the same, I think, with the AIU and, and the Athletics Integrity Unit. You know, it, uh, who would have 
thought, you know, when the allegations first came up of the corruption, you know, the Russians paying the president and allegedly the money to cover up Russian doping tests so they could compete in international competitions, that the IAAF would now be a beacon of, you know, hope hmm. of, a, of a new system. And, and I think you got to give them credit for setting up a truly independent athletics integrity unit. The IBU, International Biathlon Union, just came out out of their scandal of their, you know, leadership. And it's, Chris, right to your point, the leadership is what's so key. Um, but removing the possibility for leaders to be corrupt by setting up independent organizations, I think, is the, the only way to go. So what I tell his athletes is, look, we're, we're here to fight like hell for you. We understand what you're going through, and we don't control the world. We don't have all the answers, but we're going to continue to fight for mainly independence because that has been absolutely the silver bullet here in the United States, and in our opinion, from what we've seen, as well as with AIU and, and hopefully now with the IBU, to, to do our best, get our governments motivated, get our athletes motivated, to try to, to push for independence at the global regulator to you know, hopefully give you some confidence that they're doing the job right. I think there are a lot of really good people at the staff level of WADA who are working really, really hard. Unfortunately, they're handcuffed and blindfolded to a certain extent and can't do the job they would otherwise want to do. But, but there are really good people there that are working hard that truly you know, believe in clean sport and the athletes that they're, they're supposed to, to represent. But until we take away 50% of the direct sport representation at WADA, the governance and the bigger decisions like we've seen with Russia and the deadlines and the process, um, I, I just worry those are going to continue to be influenced by things other than what the, what the facts and what the evidence suggests. So tomorrow's decision matters. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> now, last question, because we're at time here with you. What can fans do and what can sponsors do? What can the other stakeholders do to fight the good fight? You know, the sponsor piece is the, let me back up. <laughs> Sorry. The, the biggest threat to clean sport and the value of clean athletes is apathy. And so at the moment, people become apathetic and don't care and just say whatever the, you know, let athletes do whatever they want. We don't care what the outcome is. That's, that's when we're in, we're in serious trouble. I think we're so far away from that. In fact, I think people, governments, athletes, the public, cares more about this issue now, maybe after Russia, um, than they ever have. And, and we're on, I really believe we're on the verge of you know, following Balco and Postal and Russia. We're on the verge of taking this to the next level where you know, today's generation of athletes as well as the next one. You know, we've got the LA 2028 games coming here, and, and we're hoping that's going to be absolutely the cleanest games ever and it'll be a pageantry for, the, for fair play and, and, and clean sport. Um, the sponsors are key, and they've been noticeably silent, and that's been extremely frustrating. Mm. I would encourage them, and I've talked to some of them, it's time to get off the sidelines and not leave sport that might, you might think has problems like we saw some do, not all, but some do in the cycling situation when it was exposed to being as corrupt and dirty as it ultimately was. But now's the time to double down. If, if you believe that sport carries the promise that I think we all do and is not just a, a profit-making 
you know, exercise, but is there for the good of people to challenge us to be better versions of ourselves, to be healthy, to compete in a, in a fun, fair, yes, wanting to win way, but teaching us the life lessons that are going to make, you know, productive citizens and employees across the globe, then now's the time to double down on it. And the silence is deafening. And, mm-hmm. and it's time to change that and, and actually step up and, and double down the effort and ensure that, you know, those who are responsible for handling sport are doing it with the uh, appropriateness and, and the responsibility that um, that burden carries. I think part of the challenge is that people in that world, fans and sponsors, think they have to come down against. It's not about that. It's coming down for those that are doing it the right way. Elevate those that are doing it the right way so that the, that sun black, you know, blots out everything else. And so thank you, Travis, for what you're doing to do your part in this fight. Thank you, Travis. From clean athletes everywhere, we well, thank you. Well, thanks, Kara. You know that means a lot. So thank you. And Chris, thanks. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming out and doing this. There you go. Episode one with Travis Tigert, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed this first step of many in this clean sport journey with us at the Clean Sport Collective. Thanks to Travis for joining us in this first episode. Thanks to, of course, to Shanna for her inspiration in starting the Clean Sport Collective and for starting this podcast. And thanks to Kara for being an athlete that's willing to speak up and speak out against doping and those that aren't doing it the right way thanks of course to you as the audience for taking this journey with us for listening to episode one you can already check out episodes two and three which are already up in episode two i talk with shanna and kara a little bit more about the inspiration behind the clean sport collective and what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast And then in episode three, we interview the CEO of Noon Hydration, Kevin Rutherford, who was one of the founding board members of the Clean Sport Collective and who leads an organization in Noon Hydration that is an advocate for clean sport as a sponsor. So check those out and then we'll have more episodes coming every other Sunday. We have lots of great guests already teed up in the pipeline. So please go check out those other episodes and stay tuned for more. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.